And so we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to begin to make your way to Matthew chapter 5, and um, you know, we've, we've been in this uh, reading plan where um, we've just been going through the Bible, hitting the foundational passages in the Bible, and I've been preaching out of it every week. And I've got to be honest, this week was uh, a little bit more difficult than some because uh, most of the week's reading was um, inside of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And chapter 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, and reading it this week, it was, I was just like, man, this is good stuff. Like Jesus knew how to preach. And, and so I thought, man, uh, how do you choose? <laughs> how do you choose one passage out of the Sermon on the Mount? It's all good. And, and I thought, you know what? This is going to be a sermon series. Not right now. It's going to have to be in the future. Um, but uh, just be looking, keeping an eye out for a sermon series called the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if it's going to come in 2024 or 2025, but in the Lord's timing. Because we could spend six months at least in the Sermon on the Mount. It is so rich and, and good for us. But I said, you know what? I think all I have time to cover today is Jesus' introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, to give us a little context, uh, Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew is written by the Apostle Matthew. He was one of the 12 uh, disciples of Jesus Christ, and he wrote his Gospel probably around 50 or 60 A.D. And, and really, the thrust of his Gospel is uh, to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of um, the, the promises of the Messiah, that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. And um, so in this point in the text, in chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus has been born and baptized and went in the wilderness to be tempted. He has begun his ministry. He's called some people to follow him. And he's begun to preach the gospel, traveling around, uh, traveling around town, preaching the gospel and healing the sick. And so um, and he, in several places it says that he healed all of the sick and all who were oppressed by any um, demons, you know. And so he's healing people, delivering people. And so that word gets around about Jesus. And crowds begin to follow Jesus. And so one day he goes up on a mountain and he sits down and he begins to teach his disciples um, and he gives this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's like uh, it records five discourses of Jesus. Um, the largest of them being this, the Sermon on the Mount. It's affectionately called that because he simply just gave. Jesus didn't title, it, title his sermon. He didn't stand up and say, "Today the sermon is titled Sermon on the Mount." The sermon is titled Sermon. <laughs> um, no, he, it's titled that simply because this, is, this was a large, a mountain of a sermon that he gave here. Um, Mark, the Gospel of Mark and John do not include any of this sermon. Um, Luke alludes to portions of the sermon, uh, but this by far is the largest recording of Jesus' teaching, one, one chunk of Jesus' teaching. Now, it is, um, it's not lengthy. Some believe that maybe this was just a summary 
or an outline of Jesus' message because if you read it on average, you could probably read it in 10 minutes. And as we know, sermons are not 10 minutes, okay? <laughs> sermons are not 10 minutes. That's like a devotional. And so this is probably maybe a summarized version of this message that he gave. Um, but Jesus gave, preached the best sermon ever preached. And he was the best preacher to ever live. And so it is a little bit intimidating even seeking to re-preach what Jesus preached. Because how do you do it justice? It's kind of like I just want to say go read it. And if you've been in the reading plan, maybe you did read it this week. And I hope you did. Because it's good. But this sermon is about the life lived in the kingdom of God. What does it look like to live in the kingdom. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verse 1 through 12. This is known as the Beatitudes. And, uh, and then we'll pray and jump right in. Matthew 5, 1. Are we all there together? All right. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you for gathering your people together, gathering us together in fellowship and worship, and now to hear your word. And I just pray that you would move among us, that God, you would use me to cast a vision of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, the blessedness of knowing you and living with you. And so, Father, I pray that you'd speak. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive what you have for us, God. I pray your Holy Spirit would continue to move powerfully in this place. Guide my tongue, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. By raise of hands, how many of you want to be uh, happy? All right, good. Most of you, some of you, we'll have prayer after, but... I think most people want to be happy. Uh, we want to pursue happiness. Really, almost everything we do in life is motivated by our desire to be happy in one way or another. But then we all kind of define happiness a little bit differently. We all know it's something we want, but we don't all agree what necessarily it is. And therefore, there's millions of dollars made every year trying to sell you the newest, best secret to happiness. 
That's why we have bestsellers books like Your Best Life Now. Like, let me tell you how to have your best life now because we're all looking for the little thing that unlocks the secret to happiness. But what if, what if the secret to happiness was not actually a new thing? What if it was actually an old thing? An ancient thing, maybe. What if the secret to happiness actually is what Jesus taught 2,000 years ago when he sat on a mountain and began to tell people what the blessed life was like? What true happiness uh, was all about? And Jesus told us what the blessed life was in his introduction to his Sermon on the Mount when he gave us what we now know as the Beatitudes. Beatitudes is just the Latin word uh, that means blessed. So these are the, the blessings from the Lord. Um, but before we get there, let's look at verse 1 and get a little context for this sermon. And so verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying... And so Jesus went up on the mountain. Now, if the, the original audience, the G Hebrew people, as they were reading this, they would have said, their mind would have immediately gone to, like Moses. You know, because whenever Moses delivered, uh, God used Moses to deliver the people out of slavery in Egypt, and he brought them to a mountain to meet with God, Mount Sinai. And then Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law of God from the Lord. And so they would have thought, like Moses. And there's some eerie kind of similarities, parallels between Moses and Jesus in the sense of the Israelites were in slavery for 430 years, or they were in Egypt for 430 years before God sent a deliverer to pull them out of slavery and into the promised land. And between the Testaments is a period of 400 years of silence, and then God breaks the silence, but it's not till 30 years later that God makes deliverance available from the slavery to sin and leads us into the true promised land. And uh, are you seeing it? Okay, you see it. But um, Moses went up on the mountain to give the law of God, the Ten Commandments, for how to live in the promised land. Now Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, is going up in the mountain and giving a new command, a new issue, a new statement on what it looks like to live in the true promised land, in the kingdom of God. Moses' list of Ten Commandments from God, they were Ten Commandments. They're things that you do, but the Beatitudes are not things that you do. They're things that you are. He says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. So it's not simply things that you do. It's things that you are in Christ. Here he's seated. He's sitting on the mountain. This was a, a common position, posture for a rabbi to teach. Actually, they do it the opposite as we do it. The rabbi would sit down to teach and all the people would stand up to listen. What if we try that today? No? No? 
Aren't you glad it's changed? We've changed things up a bit. But this is a posture of, of authority. In the end of his message, the crowd say, man, they were marveled because he spoke as one who had authority. And so he's sitting in a posture of authority, almost like a king who's, who's giving command to who is in his kingdom and who is not. He's seated. He's teaching uh, the disciples. So he's, he's seeing these crowds, but then he goes up and he sits down, um, and his disciples came to him. Now, Jesus had more than just 12 disciples. Disciple simply means a learner, a follower, a student of Jesus. And so he had, at, one, at some point, hundreds of disciples, people who were kind of serious about learning from him and listening to him. And so his disciples come to him. Now, so his message is primarily directed at people who are seeking to learn from Jesus, people who are students of Jesus, who want to follow Jesus. That's who, that's who his message is directed at. The message is not directed primarily to unbelieving world, although um, the crowds are around. Other people, other than his disciples, began to listen in. And so we have to understand that his message is for believers, but it's also inviting to those who are not yet believers. In the same way as we gather as a church, the gathering is the gathering of the saints. We Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We come together to worship the God that we, that we serve, that we believe in. But we have to understand that although the primary aim of a sermon necessarily is to edify and equip and challenge and encourage the saints, we have to be aware that, that there's unbelieving people among us, that there's the crowd among us, and they should be drawn in as they see what life in the kingdom is like. And that's what happens, and the reason we know that the crowds were there is because, like I said, at the end of, of chapter 7, he says, the, the crowd said, the crowds were like, man, this guy can preach, because they were listening. But his primary focus here is, is the disciples, teaching them. And then um, it says that he opened his mouth and taught them. It seems like maybe that's a detail you don't have to include. How do you teach them without opening your mouth? <laughs> uh, but I, I think this is trying to maybe emphasize all throughout history up to this point, God spoke through other people. God spoke through prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel. Like he spoke through prophets, never quite directly to people. But now, Jesus, God in the flesh, is now opening his mouth and personally communicating what's on his heart to his people. What an incredible moment. I think this also emphasizes that he is, he is uh, clear and maybe loud and speaking with authority. He's not getting up there and he's like, hey guys, let me let me give you a few, let me just share a few things with you. Let me just share some insights. Let me share some helpful tips with you, everybody. I don't think that's what he, he's, he's stating things clearly here. Um, he gives eight blessings. Blessed are, blessed are. It's actually the, the only time in the Bible that 
God, through Jesus, he repeats himself eight times like this. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And what we need to know is that all eight are for all Christians. This is not an a la carte menu. This is not a buffet where you pick out the things that you like. All of them are for all Christians. He said, blessed are. That's the theme. Blessing. Blessing, blessed, um, means oh how happy, literally, is I guess the translation. Oh how happy. But it means more than just happiness. The Greek is uh, makarios, which is this happiness. It's a deep-rooted happiness. It's the happiness that we really all long for. It's a deep and lasting and objective happiness. It's a, it's a persistent state, not a fleeting feeling. Blessed means enjoying all the benefits It's all the benefits of enjoying Jesus. It means having God's approval and God's affection and God's attention. The idea of of, uh, Makarios is there, there was an island that was like a paradise island. We might think of it as like Hawaii, although Hawaii is not in a good state right now. We need to be praying for them, but in our minds, we think paradise. It's this island out there, you know. It's like Hakuna Matata. You know, it means no worries for the rest of your days, right? And so in the Greek mind, Makarios was the name of this island because it was like, on that island, that's paradise. That's where everything is good. That's the good life. And so Makarios was this deep longing that all people have for this good life, this blessed life, the, the happy life. Blessed, I think, though, is is more than a feeling of happiness. It's also a position of holiness. It's also a position of holy in the sense of set apart uh, for God. As opposed to being cursed. Right? So there's two types of people. There's those who are blessed and those who are cursed. In the end, we're all going to be separated into one of two categories. You are the blessed or the cursed. You are with Christ or you have rejected Christ. You are in heaven or you're in hell. There's only two options. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Whoever comes to the Father must go through me. And so you have blessed or cursed. So I think he's not just saying blessed in the sense of you're happy. I think he's saying blessed in the sense of these are the people who are not the cursed. These are the people who are citizens of heaven. The Beatitudes also are a state of being. A state of being. This is the describing the character of of one who is a citizen of God's kingdom. These are the blessed ones. One pastor said that this this is the state that the gospel creates. That the Beatitudes are the state that the gospel creates. These are not the type of people that Jesus is looking for. Okay, not the type of people Jesus is looking for. He's not like, if you want 
to be in my kingdom, you've got to clean yourself up and you've got to check all these boxes. So here's a list. Make sure you look like this if you want me to let you into my kingdom. No, these aren't the people that Jesus is looking for. These are the type of people that Jesus is creating. He's taking us from our current state of helplessness and he's turning us into these things. The Sermon on the Mount shows us the life we are meant to live, the blessed ones. So the blessed ones are eight things. The outline is simple today. It's simply the Beatitudes, okay? How do you, how do you rephrase what Jesus has already said, right, in the sense of this outline? So I'm not going to try to even try to rephrase or even alliterate, although did you know the Beatitudes are alliterated in the Greek, okay? just want you to know that. Just trying to be like Jesus when I do that kind of stuff for you. But the outline is simple. We're just going to look at each of the eight, and we had to go quickly, okay? The first one is this. The blessed ones are the poor in spirit. Each blessing, each blessing has kind of a, a character trait and then a reward for that. And so blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. So this, he's talking about spiritual poverty. He's talking about what it looks like to be to understand that you were spiritually bankrupt before God. Now he's not talking about what we talk about when we say I'm poor, because I don't know about you, I have a hard time finding people who don't believe they're poor. Right? Everybody you talk to, either you are poor or you grew up poor, and poor means that you've kind of run out of expenditures, you know, expendable money for the month, and you're like, I'm poor, I can't afford that. Uh, he's not talking about that. He's not talking about um, there's like a working poor, in our country at least, there's a working poor where you, you might be below the poverty line, you're, you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're, um, you're uh, don't really have a ton of money after you've paid your bills, you're, you, you've maybe out of grocery money. Um, you might not have anything in savings. You might be running your bank account empty every single month, but you still have a house, and you still have a car, and you still have some sort of income. He's not talking about working poor as in the sense of we can all say, yeah, I'm poor. He's talking about the truly poor. This is the poor, the type of poor that you don't have two pennies to rub together. This is the type of poor of a beggar. They're absolutely bankrupt. I have nothing. I'm destitute and desperate. It's not that they have nothing in the bank account. It's that they don't have a bank account. Desperate is what it's a picture of. This is the spiritual posture of someone in God's kingdom. They realize that they have absolutely nothing of value to offer God. I'm totally dependent on God's grace to look at me and offer me anything. If we have any mind of thinking that somehow we are good enough or God chose us because I'm better than my neighbors or if we have any attitude of thinking that we have anything to offer God of value, that's not what this is. This is absolutely broke spiritually. It's the recognition that the only thing that I bring to my salvation is my sin. That's the only thing I bring. I'm not bringing anything else. It's not like I'm getting halfway there and Jesus is, is filling in the rest. 
The only thing I bring to my salvation is the, the thing that I, the reason why I need salvation. The only thing I bring is my sin. It's also the idea, poor in spirit, that you must be emptied before you are filled. That the gospel is not just something that you add to your already full life. It's not something I'm just adding on. It's you have to empty yourself before you fill yourself with anything. So the gospel says, empty yourself of all of yourself so that the gospel can fill you with all of Christ. Are you poor in spirit? So here's the reward. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He actually bookends the Beatitudes with this reward, with this promise. In uh, verse 10, it's the same promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is the kingdom of heaven? In the Bible, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God sometimes are synonymous in the sense that they're used interchangeably. Uh, sometimes they're not. There's distinction. But uh, how can we think about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? Uh, here's two ways to think about it. The kingdom of God is, um, is God's kingdom rule in your life. Uh, whenever Jesus came, no, notice he says, the kingdom yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's, it's something that happens now. It's something that occurs now. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Very present here. He's not saying uh, yours will be the kingdom of heaven, like one day you're going to get to go to heaven. Yours is the kingdom. So whenever Jesus comes into your life, he sets up kingdom rule in your heart, in your life. Luke chapter uh, 17, verse 20 and 21 say this. Here's the New King James Version, and it says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees then, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. It's within you. And so he's like, if you're thinking that I'm going to come and set up some earthly kingdom where I'm going to overpower Rome and I'm going to set up my kingship here on earth and bring Israel back to its former glory on the planet right now, you're mistaken. That's not what the kingdom is, at least not right now. The kingdom is not observable. The kingdom is within you. It's that he is the king of your heart. He rules. And then the other way that the kingdom, so the kingdom of God is God's rule in your life. The kingdom of heaven, um, biblically, is uh, where God dwells or where God reigns. So whenever we think of heaven, we think of that's where God is. Um, that's where one day maybe you will be temporarily until he sets up a new heaven and a new earth and then his kingdom will be physical, observable, tangible on the planet. But until then, it's an internal thing. Is God the king of your heart? And so what he's saying here at the onset is that um, the, the pure, not the pure, the poor in spirit is the entry point into the kingdom of heaven. This is how we make our way into the kingdom of heaven is through understanding I have nothing to bring and I need all of Jesus 
to get me in. Poor in spirit. Secondly, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who uh, mourn. Now, William Barclay, a theologian, he says, the Greek word for mourn used here is the strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. It is the word which is used for mourning of the dead, for the passionate lament for one who has, uh, for lost one who has loved ones. I just messed that up. (laughs) The passionate lament for one who was loved, okay? The idea that this is a, this is a, pa- a strong word here for mourning. And what does he mean by this? Does he mean, um, blessed are those who mourn in the sense of you've, you've uh, tr- experienced a difficulty or a loss and you're grieving that and there's something uh, to difficulty and mourning that matures you as a believer and therefore it forges you into the mature person that God wants you to be in a, in a way that couldn't happen otherwise? Is that what he's saying? Possibly, it could be. But I think in context, he's connecting this to the previous one because all of these Beatitudes kind of build on each other. And so he's like, blessed are the poor in spirit and then blessed are those who mourn in the sense of you're mourning uh, your spiritual poverty. In the sense of you're mourning the state of your soul. You're mourning your sin. It seems like. It's a, it's a spiritual grieving over sin. You're mourning the dying to self. This mourning is the godly sorrow which produces repentance. Paul described this in 2 Corinthians 7.10 where he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so he's saying there is a godly grief over my sin where you're broken about your sin that leads you to repentance and life in Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn the reward, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. There will be a day where your grief over your sin is over and you receive the comfort of the presence of the Lord in paradise, in the kingdom realized. Um, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So he's saying, hey, look, whenever you mourn, God comforts you so that you can comfort one another. And so you experience comfort from God and you give comfort to one another and that is the promise, the reward for godly grief, for mourning your sin. He goes on to say, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is a humble self-forgetfulness. Meekness is a humble self-forgetfulness. It's not thinking um, less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. It's not not, woe is me. It's not I'm worthless. It's not that attitude. It is thinking of myself 
less, a humble self-forgetfulness, thinking of others, putting others ahead of my own. That's what it looks like to be meek. In Philippians 2, 3, and 4, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility and meekness count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. So meekness, humility, is looking, uh, counting others more significant than yourself. It's the ability to forget about yourself. And... Um, to prioritize others. But meekness does not mean weakness. Meek does not mean weak. Actually, the word meek in the Greek, uh, it gives the idea to domesticate a wild animal. The idea behind the word meek is strength under control. Strength under control. It's, it's the idea of a strong stallion that was trained to do a job instead of running wild. It's, it's the idea of being tame. So it's not that you're weak, it's that you're strong but self-controlled. You have self-control. Jesus was meek, but he was by no means weak. This word meek is the same one that Jesus used in Matthew 11, verse 28, where he says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. There it is. I'm gentle, meek, and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So meekness is not weakness, but it is strength under control. It is it's not asserting my own agenda. Meekness is that you have the strength to push things through, but you have the self-control to not push things through. In the sense of, I'm not going to make things happen in my own strength. I'm going to be faithful and obedient to God and trust God with the outcome. It's a submissiveness to God. That's what it is. Meekness is... I'm, I have the, I'm wild enough to rebel, but I'm self-controlled enough to submit all of myself to the Lord. And um, the reward here for meekness is they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the earth. Now, um, man, these meek people are the, the last person you'd expect to inherit the earth in the sense of... <clears throat> Meekness is you're not, you're not asserting yourself. And so you're not inheriting the earth because you went and conquered it. You're inheriting the earth because it was a gift. That's what an inheritance is. It's a gift to you. And he says the earth because there's going to be a day where the, this earth passes away and there's a new heaven and a new earth and that's where we will live for eternity. And he gives this idea that there, you will have a position of, of ownership because Inheritance is different than entering. In the sense of like, he's like, you're not just going to enter into heaven or into eternity or into the earth. You will inherit it, so you will have ownership over it. It's the difference between attending a dinner party, entering into the dinner party, and owning the house. And so he's saying in the new heaven, in the new earth, these meek people... 
These are the ones that will have some form of responsibility and authority and rule and possession over the new earth because it was given to them by God. Are you meek? Are you meek? Fourthly, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, so the first three Beatitudes now have been about emptying yourself, really, and this fourth one now is about filling yourself up. Righteousness, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, righteousness is the idea, um, the desire to be right. Okay, so the desire to be right, not like in an argument, the desire to be right with God and right with others. Righteousness is, um, you can desire to be right morally. And so righteousness would be pursuing sanctification and holiness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to leave sinfulness. I, I desire, I hunger, I thirst for being right morally before God and then being right positionally in my relationship with God. So, this is, this is what be considered the imputed righteousness of Jesus. That whenever we come to faith in Christ, whenever we come to Him poor in spirit, realizing we have nothing to offer, and we're grieving over our sin, and we humbly come before Him in a meek posture, this is where He gives us His righteousness. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so righteousness is something that he's given to us positionally whenever we trust him for salvation. Jesus satisfies your hunger for righteousness by giving you his own. And so this hunger and thirst for righteousness is really a hunger and thirst for more of Jesus. I want more of Jesus because your appetite drives your life, doesn't it? Whatever you hunger for drives you to find the satisfaction in life. We see Christians who are hungering for many things, for power and authority and success and comfort and pleasure and happiness. But how many Christians are hungering and thirsting for righteousness? We ask questions like, is this a sin? What kind of question is that? We're not supposed to be walking so close to sin that we have to ask, is this a sin? Our pursuit, our hunger should be for righteousness. Does it please God? Here's the reward. You will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. Um, in the sense of if your desire is to be holy, if you desire what pleases God and to be right with God, and morally and positionally, if you desire those things... Um, not only is Jesus satisfying to your soul, 
but heaven's going to be satisfying because everything's going to be right. Everything's going to be made right. So he, here's what I have to assert is that if you don't hunger for righteousness, heaven will be unsatisfying. If you have in your, in your mind that somehow you're going to heaven, but you don't have a growing hunger for righteousness, heaven will not be satisfying to you because that's what righteous is. Righteousness is in heaven. Heaven's going to be perfect and holy and right. And so if in this life I'm not growing in my hunger and thirst for those things, it'll be a miserable experience. And you're like, that can't be right. Heaven's not going to be miserable for anyone. Right. I guess what I want you to see is a picture for heaven on whether or not you're going there. Do I have a growing pain in me that pushes me further and further to righteousness? Okay, we've got to move quicker than this. Number five, blessed are the merciful. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Merciful people act to relieve suffering. Why do we do this? Because we have received mercy. So justice is getting what you deserve. You know, you go before the court, they weigh what you did, what you didn't. You know, justice is getting the right punishment for what you deserve. Um, mercy is getting what you, is not getting what you deserve. So if I deserve hell because I've sinned against a holy God, and so I deserve hell, that is the, the right, just punishment for my sin. Mercy is God saying, I'm not going to give that to you because of my mercy. I'm going to save you from that because of my mercy. And um, so as a recipient of God's mercy, he wants us then to be dispensers of God's mercy to others. We have received so much mercy, and so many of us want to hold the mercy for ourselves. We, we like to receive mercy. Mercy for me, justice for you. Mercy for me, justice for you. And so we want people to show us grace, but we don't want to dispense that to others. Are you merciful? When you see a need, do you act in mercy to help? When you see a need, when you see suffering in some form, do you act in mercy to meet the need? Are you merciful? Do you dispense the same mercy that has been so generously lavished upon us? Luke 6.36 says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And he says that's a reward is that whenever you are merciful, you will receive mercy. Now, he's not necessarily saying that mercy is contingent in the sense that you're not going to receive any mercy from God until you're merciful to others. I think what he's saying is that people who have received the mercy of God are merciful people. And it's kind of one of those things where the more merciful you are, the more God showers his mercy on you. 
And so it's almost like deal with others as you wish God to deal with you. Does that make sense? Blessed are the merciful. They'll receive mercy. Verse uh, number six, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Now, this is probably one of the most difficult ones. Blessed are the pure in heart. Who among us are pure in heart? In the ancient Greek, uh, the phrase pure of heart has the idea of straightness, honesty, and clarity. So there can be two ideas that are connected to this word. One is an, one of inner moral purity as opposed to the image of of purity, of ceremonial purity. So in the sense of, in, in, in contrast to the Pharisees, who they would do all these things to, to look pure on the outside, but Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but you're full of dead man's bones. And he's like, I actually am looking at something on the inside. And so it's an inward moral purity as opposed to just an external thing. The other idea is that of a single undivided heart. Those who are utterly sincere and not divided in devotion and commitment to God. So pure of heart could mean that you're undivided in your devotion to the Lord. But either way, God's always concerned with the heart. The Pharisees were concerned with external things and, and really God gave the Jewish people a lot of external rituals and ceremonies to do to purify themselves and they had kind of completely lost the whole intent of those laws and just made it an external ceremony or ritual to look pure on the outside, but it was always designed to point us to our need for a pure heart. Because none of our hearts are pure, are they? Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful and wicked. None of our hearts are pure. I was actually thinking just a moment ago as, as I was sitting over there during the worship service and and um, I was thinking about that phrase. That phrase in the last song really touched me, Shekinah glory. And Shekinah meaning the manifest presence of God, the glory of God in a tangible way. And the, the, the line that stood out to me that just really wrecked me over there was, release the fullness of your glory. The, the fullness of your presence, I think it was. Release the fullness of your presence Shekinah glory come. Shekinah glory come. And I just thought over there for a moment, I don't know if I want that to happen. I don't know if I'm ready for the fullness of his presence. Because I think it would like it eviscerate me. In the sense of I know my heart. And I know I'm not pure enough to be in the fullness of his presence. I love the song. I think it's one way. I'm not critiquing the song. I'm saying it touched me in a different way than it ever has. As I sat over there and said, I don't know that we're ready for that to happen. I don't know as we gather together here this weekend that we are so poor in spirit and grieving over sin and meek and hungry for righteousness, that we come in with a pure and undivided heart in such a way that we are ready for God to release the fullness of his presence. I think I would just be wrecked. I think I'd be in line with all the other prophets who have ever 
had the experience of being in the presence of God like Isaiah where he says, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He's not in any way saying you can purify your own heart. It's actually pointing us to our need that we cannot... We cannot get a new heart by trying to become like Jesus. You get a new heart by being incorporated into Jesus. It's a gift of God to clean your heart. But he also gives us a responsibility to walk in purity. And I think we have to hold both of those things because I think what is preached so often and so true, which is that there's nothing we can do, in a sense, to become pure in our own strength and to be righteous in our own strength. That all of that can only happen through Christ's work in our life, but there's also a responsibility to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness, to pursue purity in our lives. He says... The reward here is that you will see God. You will see God. How is that possible? Um, No one's ever ever seen God, right? And lived. That's what the Bible says. No one has ever seen God. Um, Because you can't, God's always only ever revealed himself to people through some sort of filter. And even in Christ, there's the filter of humanity over deity, and so how can anyone see God in a sense? And I think there is an experience that we are kind of seeing through a glass dimly right now, but there will be a day where we are able to experience the fullness of his presence and, and see him clearly. But I also think it's this idea that those who are pure in heart see God at work in their life more than those who aren't. In the sense of the cleaner my heart gets, the closer I get to Christ, the more I see his activity everywhere. It's not that God's not moving. It's not that I, it's not, God's not doing things or revealing himself. It's that I can't see it. It's like if I, I wear glasses, you know, if I, like, I, my glasses got dirty, I would have a hard time seeing things. But, you know, if I cleaned my glasses, I could then see clearly what was going on. In the same way, if our heart is impure, dirty, defiled before God, we have a hard time seeing him at work. Like, well, How come some people, they just always see God working everywhere? Seems like God's just moving so powerfully in some people's lives. How come he doesn't do that with me? And uh, it's because some people are cleaning their glasses before the Lord. First John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are all, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall all be like him, because he, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The pure in heart. We'll see God. Verse number seven, blessed are the peacemakers. Verse nine, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So peacemakers are people who bring peace wherever they go. They bring the shalom, the peace, the well-being of God. And one way to accomplish this is through the spread of the gospel, that God has made peace with us, and then he's given us the, the ministry of reconciliation. St. Corinthians 5.18 says that we are to go and reconcile others to God so that they can have peace with God. So this is peacemaking, not peacekeeping. See, peacekeepers avoid conflict at all costs, don't they? I'm just going to keep the peace, just keeping the peace. But peacemakers, peacemakers are active and seek to resolve conflicts. They're willing to have the hard conversations to broker peace between two parties. Maybe you're brokering peace between God and people or brokering peace between you and someone or between two other parties. But either way, you're not passive and avoiding of conflict like peacekeepers. You're active and resolving conflict because you're a peacemaker. The biblical idea of this, I think, as I thought about it, was Abraham seems to be a little bit more peacekeepery as he goes into town and he says, hey, this is my sister, because he doesn't want to, he's talking about his wife, but he's like, here's my sister, because he doesn't want to, you know, stir the pot. He doesn't want to disturb anything. He wants to keep the peace at the sacrifice of his wife. He's willing to let Pharaoh take his wife rather than disturb anything and get in trouble. I don't want to have that conversation. Um, so that's peacekeeping. Peacemaking would be like Moses, who's willing to walk into the office of the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. So that I can broker peace between, I can, you know, broker peace between God and people. So that's the difference. Do you avoid conflict or do you resolve conflict? And the reward is um, called sons of God. They will be called sons of God because like father, like son. Children of God. Um, you will be acting as God has acted on our behalf. We see this in Colossians 1.20. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And through the cross of Christ, we are made uh, at peace with God. And whenever we help others become at peace with God and, and one another, we are acting as sons and daughters of God. Do you bring peace wherever you go? Do you bring peace? You walk in the room, does it become a more peaceful place? Last one, number eight. <clears throat> Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 10. Persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he's like, get ready for persecution. If all the other ones were um, virtues or characteristics of the blessed ones, this one is the result of living like that. Whenever you begin to live differently than the world lives and, and have a pure heart towards God, what's going to happen is you're going to be persecuted in some way or another. We've enjoyed tremendous um, comfort here and lack of persecution in our nation uh, because of the culture of our country and the founding of our country. Um, I think we're moving further, closer and closer to some form of persecution. But what he's saying is be ready for it. 
Do not consider it a strange thing when others hate you uh, for your faith in Christ. Um, But then in verse 11 and 12, um, some call this a double blessing. Because in verse 11 and 12 it says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my, my account. Rejoice and be glad, for yours is the reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is a double blessing. Like my twins, you know, they're a double blessing. These twin two-year-old boys, they're a double blessing. This, you get a double blessing of persecution. I'm not trying to connect those things. Those, those are separate, but <laughs> here he's saying, <laughs> you get a double blessing of persecution. And he says, sometimes, sometimes um, persecution comes in in a verbal form. Um, It's not always a a physical attack. Sometimes it's a verbal attack because blessed blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And um, I I think we have to notice that he gives some some, uh, qualifiers here for the blessing, Um, they have to do it um, falsely and um, for his account. And so it's it's not a blessing when you are persecuted because you're a jerk or because you're unpleasant or immature or, or, you know, you're acting in stupidity. That, that's not what he's saying. All persecution, he's not saying you should rejoice. But if all per- no, he's saying whenever it's falsely, you've lived as this, as I've described here. You haven't harmed anybody. It's falsely, and it's for my namesake. It's persecution for Christ. Um, here's the reward. The same one as before. The same one as the first one. Uh, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he says, he doesn't just say, yours is the kingdom of heaven, but he says, rejoice, verse 12, and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. How can I rejoice at persecution? Who does that? Um, those who are rejoicing, those who are being persecuted for righteousness sake. This is what the apostles did. Um, when the apostles were persecuted for preaching the gospel, they were arrested, and then God freed them, and they kept preaching, and then they were arrested again. And um, they said, look, we're going to let you go, but quit preaching the gospel. And then it says they flogged them, so they beat them and released them. And on the way home that day in in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says, then they... They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. <laughs> They're like, woohoo! <laughs> I can't believe we were counted worthy. There, there's a sense in when you receive persecution for your faith that it's a confirmation that I'm really a Christian. It's a confirmation that I really believe this stuff if I'm willing to be persecuted for it. Um, there's some martyrs throughout history um, that are written about in different books like uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And uh, I wanted to share one 
a few with you. Uh, George Roper uh, came to the stake leaping for joy. He was being burned at the stake. He came leaping for joy and hugged the stake. He was to be burned at like a friend. He grabbed it, you know, I can't believe I get to be counted worthy of this. Dr. Roland Taylor leapt and danced a little as he came to his execution, saying that when um, asked how he was, he says, Well, God be praised, good master sheriff, never better, for now I am almost home. I am even at my father's house. Um, Lawrence Saunders says, Who, with a smiling face, embraced the stake of his execution and kissed it? saying, welcome the cross of Christ, welcome everlasting life. So it seems what he says here is rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He said, you're going somewhere great and uh, you're among friends. They did this to the prophets. And we can look back on church history and say they did this to the church fathers throughout history, anyone who's taken a stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ, they've persecuted them. And look at how they rejoiced. And you rejoice. Let me ask you, if no one speaks evil of you, are these beatitudes even traits in your life? As I read this, and you know, he says over and over, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, it doesn't really sound like the blessed life, does it? It doesn't sound what we would think of the blessed life. I mean, the world says that blessed are the rich. Blessed are the thin. Blessed are the tanned. Uh, Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are those who make a great name for themselves. But Jesus said the opposite. When we think of being blessed, we typically don't think of being poor and mourning and meek, and hungry, and thirsty, and persecuted, and reviled. But what he's saying here is that this blessing far surpasses any circumstance because the blessing is the the blessed life of knowing the king of the kingdom of God. And knowing that these momentary afflictions pale in comparison to the glory that is to come. Aren't these blessings, these beatitudes, actually describing a person named Jesus? That Christ is the true blessed one who was poor in spirit and mournful and meek and righteous and merciful and pure and a peacemaker and persecuted. See, the blessed life is not one that's an absence of trouble, but it's one of the presence of Jesus, the true blessed one. This is the life that Jesus came to make possible. This is the life Jesus came to make possible. Again, he's not saying, hey, work really hard to get this life. He's saying, this is the life of the people that I create. So pursue me, hunger after me, and I will turn you into this. Maybe just as we reflect, you can ask, which of these am I weakest? As I think about all these virtues of the blessed ones, where am I in the weakest one? And as we reflect on this, maybe you can pray, uh, God help me.
transform my heart to look more like this. I'll conclude with uh, first, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, where it says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Father in heaven, I pray that you would draw us to yourself as you have painted a picture for us of the blessed life, what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. And Lord, I think just reading it myself, I'm confronted that, that many of these don't describe me so great. And so I just pray that you would transform us into the image of your son. And Lord, that you would draw new people in, just as you did on that day that there were the disciples, but then there were also the crowds who were listening in. And so I pray that if no one has ever bowed a knee to King Jesus before, that today would be the day and that you would transform their heart. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.